0: Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Rick, um, for leading us in worship this morning, brother, to fix our eyes on Jesus and to run our race toward him. This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bible. Um, There should be one in the seat back in front of you, or if you don't have one this morning, Um, but to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And what we're doing right now is we're walking through chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, looking at this idea of generosity. And as I shared last week, uh, this is not a sermon series aimed at trying trying to get you to give more. Um, This is about a sermon series about us as a church collectively being a generous church. Um, The reality for us um, as a church is that we want to be biblically thriving in every sense of that word. And so as we've looked at some of the changes that we've made in our own finances as a church and want to continually orient ourselves to being generous to those in need, we now come to this passage or these, these two chapters of text to be able to see how God speaks to us, but then we know that corporately, as this is making application, it then reaches us personally. And so I want to encourage you um, with just a couple of examples of things that I'm already seeing. And I want you to see how when the Word of God is what is the the ground in which we're growing, how that immediately results in obedience to the Word of God. And so just this past week, last Sunday, um, an individual here in the church stopped me after the service and said, I was listening to the sermon this morning, which is always a good thing for a pastor to hear, um, you know. Because I know that not all of you are in a state of prayer right now. You know, it's uh, something else. Um, But it's always good. He said, my wife and I, we want to give a gift um, to be able to help individuals, um, specifically that are are trying to meet their deductible um, and that are going through a very difficult time of this hurricane, uh, with a gift of $20,000. Uh, to be able to give to help people in need. Then later in the week, another person um, sent a gift into the church. Um, it had five uh, Target gift cards in it for $75. And this individual wrote in the, in the note that after uh, a hurricane in their own life, earlier in life, that as an individual had given money, specifically a gift card to, to their teenage child who had lost almost everything. And they said, no teenager should ever have to lose everything. And so the gift was given specifically to be able to help teenagers in this moment in New Orleans and in the greater New Orleans area, especially those hard hit areas, to be able to help them because no teenager should ever have to lose everything. And so I just love the beauty. I want you to see the diversity there, but just how it was just springing up out of the ground this week as individuals being led by the Spirit of God were responding to the needs that we're encountering right now in our own own area in order to supply that, that the Lord has given to them so that they can be a blessing in this moment to those that are in need. And that's exactly what we see called for in the passage that we consider today. And so I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to begin in verse 7 and read down through verse 15 this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. Now, as you excel in everything— In faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich." And in this matter, I am giving advice because it is profitable for you, who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task, so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you." but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it's written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Father, I pray this morning that with our eyes fixed on verse 9, on this reality that of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, we might become rich, would inform our understanding of what generosity is more than anything else that we'll consider. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I've entitled this sermon series "Generosity Is," um, and I'm, I'm trying to complete this sentence um, each week with just some ideas that we can walk away with. Um, and so, we we looked last week at generosity as a spiritual condition, not a financial position. That generosity is really something that the Spirit of God produces in a person who has given their life to Him, so that according to their means, they continue to honor the Lord through giving and blessing and caring for others, and that that is not dependent on your financial status, so that it can be said of all people who belong to Christ that we collectively are called to be a generous people. This morning, we look at this. Generosity is a lifestyle produced by the gospel. Generosity is a lifestyle produced by the gospel. Now, when we talk about lifestyles, we often speak in kind of encompassing terms. You know, when I talk about a person who maybe is living in a certain place, has a certain job, drives a certain car, has their kids in a certain set of schools, you know, does certain travel and leisure and hobbies and things like that, I'm speaking kind of in this totality of their lifestyle. I'm talking about what makes up their the fullness of their life. And so when we look at what Paul is saying here is that generosity is to be part of a, of a lifestyle. It's to characterize all of the facets of our life, and that that lifestyle of generosity is produced by the gospel. And so I want us to, first of all, just see the gospel in this passage. It's down in verse 9, and I just want us to just really see it and take it in and allow it to then... Feed our understanding of the rest of what Paul says right here. So it's right in the middle, kind of the heart of the text, verse 9, for you know. And he's not just saying an intellectual assent, like, well, you know, you understand this, like you understand some other, you know, theories or ideas. He is, he is expressing what is made clear in the rest of the letter, that these people know Christ. They know the mystery of God revealed in Christ. These are people who have been filled with the Spirit, and that Spirit is manifesting His presence. These are people, based on all that He's written in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they know Christ intimately. They have a relationship with the living Christ. And so He says to them, for you know intimately the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He sums it up in this way. Though He was rich for your sake, you're being plural there, you as the people of God, for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you collectively, not individually, but collectively as the people of God might become rich. This is what he's communicating is that though he was rich, or as Paul says in other places, you know, being in the likeness of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or to use to be used for his own advantage, but gave it up. I mean, Jesus himself saying to Pilate, don't you know that I could call on a legion of angels in this moment? So, so he gave up the riches of his authority. He gave up the riches of his prominence in heaven. He gave up all of those riches to come and to enter into our existence. And rather than just thinking of the cross as the extent of his poverty, I want you to think about his birth Think about how He entered into our existence, how He came and became one of us. He did so in poverty, born in a manger. He lived among us. I mean, we even see with the sacrifices made by Joseph and Mary, that theirs was that provision clause in the Old Testament for those who didn't have much, so that they could still worship the Lord and make a sacrifice, but it was the poor man's offering. And so Jesus came and he was in our poverty from day one. And he grew up in poverty. And from what we can kind of deduce from the New Testament is that sometime in Jesus's life, Joseph died. And so not only does he know the poverty of being born into a a family where there's a mom and a dad, but who are in poor estate, but then he loses his father, which often threw families into great destitution, where you have a widow and children to raise. And so poverty was what he knew. And then you look at his earthly ministry where things get more explicit, and he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this was a man who walked in places, who went to the difficult spaces of his region, of his world, in order to go and to be with the people and not just to look at them, not to do the the tour bus pass of like, wow, look at that poverty. I'm sure I'm glad about what all I have. It wasn't that pass through humanity that Jesus took just to see, wow, man, I'm so glad about all that I have in heaven. And to come down and look, no, he got off the bus and then he lived among us. He took up his residence with us. He entered the fullness of our poverty and lived among us, and brought about the riches of heaven. Touching, and healing, and setting free. Giving sight to the blind, the ability to walk to those that were lame. He brought life where there was death. Jesus came and entered into the full extent of our poverty, becoming poor himself. Why? Just to be a moral example? No. So that through him, through his death, you see, he entered all the way in to our poverty by even passing through death itself, to enter into that poor estate of death in order to give us the riches of life and life eternal. This is what Jesus has done. There's so much of the New Testament understanding that just all comes in and finds kind of this fulfillment right here in these words, though he was rich. Speaking of his pre-existent state with God, though he was rich for your sake, he did this for you. He became poor. And that poverty was experienced in every facet of poverty, except this: he was not in our poorest state of sin. The Bible is explicit that he was without sin. And so, what that means is he deserved nothing of our poverty. Our poverty our poor estate is part of the consequence of sin, but not Jesus. And yet, for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. So that's the basis. That's the gospel. This is one of those those passages where Paul sums it up in this really concise statement that we ought to latch onto to understand the gospel. And to understand, then Paul begins to make application, but do not miss it. If you're here today and you think that God wants your money, you've missed it. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. He knows no need. And so the passage, and Paul is not in some kind of backwards way trying to manipulate the Corinthian church to give to his pet mission to help the church in Jerusalem, He's very explicit. This is for your benefit. This is for your growth. My encouragement in this matter is going to help you in your relationship with God. So hear it. Understand it. He's not trying to get into your pocketbooks. So if you, you find yourself a little uneasy and, oh man, I feel like this is going to turn and, and it's going to be about me giving more or something like that, don't allow that, that desire to hang on to things that desire to protect against the abuses that oftentimes take place in the church. You see, the church and church leadership, pastors need to own our responsibility for the way things are. And so I apologize that even within our own denomination at times, there's seemingly a bent toward wasting money, toward, toward doing things sometimes with money that you, you look and you say, really, Like that, that's how we're gonna spend the money? But as I've noted in the days Over these last few weekends, I see some yellow shirts in the room today that are here with us, that are helping us from another state, and those are some of the good things. I want you to see some of the good things that are going on that as we give as a church and as we participate as a convention in responding to disasters and doing college ministry and doing international missions and responding to things um, in our country, church planting, all these things, that there's much more that is good then is dysfunctional and disappointing. And so I want us to see those things, and, and Paul here is communicating to them so clearly that this is for their benefit. And so as he's making application with the heart of the gospel being on display, there's three things that I feel like he, he puts forward here in this passage that informs how we are to apply this gospel of the riches of Christ being emptied for our sake, that through his poverty, we might become rich. And first of all, it's this. Paul was convinced that the gospel would transform every aspect of our lives. Paul was convinced that the gospel would transform every aspect of our lives. That was was his conviction. You see, the way he says it is is beginning of verse 7. Now, as you excel, that word excel could be also translated overflow, like your life is just bubbling over bubbling over with everything in speech, I mean in faith, speech, knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us. Well, let's walk through these for a moment and consider the expanse of what he's saying. Because sometimes what we're tempted to think is that we're to excel in these matters here for about 3 hours on a Sunday morning from about 9:30 to noon that we are to excel in faith, that our speech here should be cleaner than it is out there. That That our knowledge here should be of winning Bible trivia, that that all diligence means that you just really strive to be here most Sundays, and that our love should be a love that says, let me know if you need anything, all the while hoping that we never get that call. Is that what Paul's communicating? Is he just wanting them to put on their Sunday best? For, For Sunday mornings to be just a time of going through the motions of love? to to, to go through the motions of speech. No, instead what we see in form from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is that as he speaks about them excelling, overflowing in faith, he's talking about wonder-working faith. He's not just talking about the faith in which they placed in Jesus at the beginning where they believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he was resurrected. Certainly, that is the beginning of faith. But as he speaks in 1 Corinthians 13 about faith, he talks about moving mountains faith. He says, if you have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, you're nothing. But he acknowledges in the spiritual gift category of what people are gifted with for the building up of the body is that of faith faith that there are going to be at work within the body those who are exercising great faith in the Lord to do great things. Speech, speaking in the tongues of angels. Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 13, if you speak in the tongues of humans or of angels, speaking most likely of what they called speaking in tongues or what we call speaking in tongues, to where there was this, this prophetic utterance or this language that maybe you didn't learn in school, but all of a sudden you're speaking it of humans or angelic. It's an unintelligible language. Paul again says that if you don't have love, you're nothing, you're like a noisy gong knowledge, a robust spiritual understanding, and grasp of the mystery of Christ. In other words, they're seeing how Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. I mean, they're seeing how Christ is the promise of God that was made thousands of years before and has now found its fulfillment today. All diligence, they are eager. They are eager to meet the needs of others. And they're not dragging their feet. They're not saying, man, I'd rather not know the news because ignorance is bliss, They're eager. They want to help. There's an eagerness in them and then love. Paul says, These three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. John 13, 35. Greater love has no one than this, than somebody should lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. Paul is building toward this reality that this gospel changes everything. And I want you to consider, do you think that Paul intended for their speech only to be informed for three hours on a Sunday, and not every hour of every day. I mean, Paul speaks in explicit terms to the churches as he writes to them about speaking only what is profitable, about speaking only what builds up rather than tearing down, about, about setting a, a rain on the tongue, James writes about how, how it's this thing right here, this tongue in our mouth that becomes that fresh water that encourages and builds up and also salt water. But it shouldn't be that way, brothers. That's what, Paul, that's what James says. So this speech, these words that come out of our mouth, they are to be informed by the gospel. Paul says that your knowledge should be informed by the gospel, that your eagerness should be informed by the gospel, that the gospel when it takes root in you, it begins to produce all sort of fruit in every area of your life, including this area of generosity. And Paul knows that just as it's beneficial for your language and mine to be informed and to be changed by the power of the gospel so that what we speak is not just simply not saying bad words. Now, that's not what Paul's up to. He's not just wanting them to kind of weed out profanity. He's wanting them to speak what encourages. He's wanting them to speak what is true. He's wanting them to speak of the the wonders of Christ. And so in the same way, it's not simply in this area of generosity that Paul is not just wanting them to, to, to stop spending their money on really bad things. He's wanting their life to overflow in generosity. And there is something in us all that when we see that fruit of the Spirit, we know that it is good. You see, it is when I see men and women, boys and girls, like the granddaughter of one of our members just this past week, who has been working diligently as a young teenager in order to to put aside money to to do specific educational goals that she has and all of that, made an arrangement with her employer to give a portion of what she was making to some charitable cause. And so you know what she did with that money, with that $100 of what she had made? She gave it to help those impacted by Hurricane Ida. And so her grandmother helped her to be able to to unite that, that desire, that eagerness to give, with helping those in need. And I look, back, I look forward to reporting back to her the specific case that she was able to help with, that specific need that, that her obedience, her desire, her eagerness to, to meet the need of someone else met in that moment. And that is going to have a profound impact on her as a 13-year-old as she goes forward in her walk with the Lord. Paul was convinced that the gospel would transform every aspect of our lives, including this matter of giving. Second, Paul was convinced the gospel was powerful enough to change our desires and produce generosity. Paul was convinced that the gospel was powerful enough to change our desires and produce generosity. I mean, look what he says in verse 8. He says, I'm not saying this as a command. I mean, Paul could have said, I command you. He could have written this as an imperative that they are to give, and then they would have given. He says, rather by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. Then in verse 10, and in this matter, I'm giving advice. Again, not a command. I'm giving advice. I'm guiding you in this way because it is profitable for you who began last year, not only to do something, but to want to do it. He's acknowledging there is something at work in you right now. That, that, that spirit who is at work within you creating the desire is not to be quenched. You know, it is one thing, you know, like to have the desire, right? But then, you know, like uh, most of us in this room have the desire to eat healthy, right? Um, uh, most of us in this room have the desire to, to be strong and, and to be healthy, right? Okay, maybe not. Um, so let's just say it were the case that most of us in this room had the desire to eat healthy and to be healthy and all of these things. It's another thing then, and I've been honest with you about my weakness with Bluebell, okay? We're just, you know, we're being real in this room. It's another thing to then be offered dessert, to want to eat healthy, be healthy, and then in that moment of, here's a dessert, to say, well, I ate a salad earlier today, so this basically just offsets. I mean, that's how this works, right? And so then to to give in and to not do it. You see, desire left alone never results in a trim waistline. Desire left alone never results in a completed 5K or 10K or half marathon or marathon. No, it is the action of putting on the shoes and hitting the pavement that results in crossing the finish line. And in our lives and in this call of this passage, Paul is saying, you know what, guys, I believe in the power of the gospel. I don't have to tell you to do this. I believe that God will bring about this in your lives. There is the expectation. I mean, Paul's not just saying, well, you know, like, really, I don't don't really intend for you to give. No, he's looking forward to the generosity that's going to overflow from the church in Corinth. He, he is so confident that they are going to give because of the spirit at work within them that he says, I'm not even going to command this. There's no need. Because there is one who is in charge, and he is the one that will bring about this in you. I don't have to do it, he will. And indeed, he does. And we see Paul commend it. We see Paul commending the church of Macedonia, who in the same way, probably under the same spirit of encouragement, has given to meet urgent needs. Paul says, I'm not saying this is a command, though he could have. He says, I'm giving advice. Why? Because it's profitable for you. But he says, but I also want you to do it. There is the desire from the Lord that we will do this thing of generosity but it's also important for us to notice the way in which God's Word accomplishes it, because today there is a more heavy-handed approach. There is a more insidious approach for many in religious circles to get people to give. But this is why, church, we must be Scripture-fed. That is one of our core convictions. We must be Scripture-fed Because then we can counter those heavy-handed or manipulative approaches to get people to give, to say, but the word of the Lord says. And to know that what is issued here is an invitation from God to enter into a generous life. And I promise you, that is the life that you and I want. But thirdly, we see this. Paul was convinced that the gospel would result in biblical equality. Paul was convinced that the gospel will result in biblical equality. He goes on, and in this matter, I'm giving advice because it's profitable for you who began last year not only to, to do something, but also to want to do it. Now, also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their needs so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Now, what's he quoting there? He's quoting from Exodus. Exodus. And what he's citing there is the provision of God of manna for the people of God during their wilderness experience. And the instruction of the Lord in Exodus was this, that a person was to go out and gather for that day what was needed. The manna, this, this, this kind of a wafer, kind of a bread substance would appear on the ground and they were to gather that day how much they needed. And it was said of those people that the person who gathered much did not have too much. And the person who gathered little did not have too little. That's the quotation that he's using. Because if they did, if a person in the wilderness gathered too much, they they maybe thought, you know, what if it doesn't come tomorrow? What if God doesn't give me my daily bread? And so they tucked it away. The next morning when they got up to eat it, it was full of maggots. It was was just absolutely rotten, except for the Sabbath day. God said that on the day before the Sabbath day, so on Fridays, you were to gather twice as much, and that on the Sabbath day, you were not to go out and look for it. You were to stay at home. You were to rest. It was a day of rest, and the provision that God had provided, I mean, just think about how incredibly miraculous this is. Every other day, if you gather some for the next day, you wake up the next day, it's rotten. But on Fridays, you gather enough for then on Saturday for the Sabbath, and it's not rotten, and it's just enough so that it could still be said, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. This was God's provision. This informs the prayer of Jesus when he says, pray like this, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, that is the underpinnings of that reality that God provides for his people. And the way that God is providing for his people in the New Testament, what we see called here is that one congregation, one area of churches will help meet the needs of another. This is what Paul is putting forward. But it's important that we take a moment to be clear about what Paul is saying and what he isn't in relationship to what some of what we understand and we see today. So first of all, Paul was opposed to an HOA approach to giving, same amount required from each person regardless of differences. This is important for us to understand. You see, an HOA, a homeowners association, is a fee that some communities collect from the residents in that community in order to be in that community. But here's the thing. You can live in the smallest house in your community or the biggest house in your community, but an HOA says you owe equal amounts, dollars. So if the HOA is a thousand dollars a year, the person in the smallest house pays a thousand dollars, and a person in the biggest house pays a thousand dollars. And they say that there is equity in that source. Is that what the Apostle Paul is saying here? That there's a flat dollar amount that he expects every person to give, regardless of the individual? No. In fact, he says quite the opposite. He says, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, a person that doesn't have a thousand dollars can't give a thousand dollars. And so if he exacts on them some exact rate, some flat fee, so that there's equality for all in the room of what they're to give, then there's actually an inequality. Because some people are going to go home with nothing while others are going to go home saying, that didn't hurt much. So Paul is not doing that. Paul's desire might better be achieved through something like a percentage approach to giving. Though we must acknowledge that biblically, he never states a percentage as a command. Now, I want to tread carefully here, because if you're like me, you grew up being taught about the importance of tithing. I am so thankful Thankful beyond words that I was trained in this idea of tithing. Tithing is, is giving a tenth of your income to the Lord. And the way that I was trained as a child, especially by my mother, and then through the preaching of an African-American pastor named Tony Evans. Those are the two big influences in my own life as a teenager about this matter of giving. So that as soon as I got my first job at 13, working after school— There was instilled in me this idea that the first thing, the very first thing that I was to do with the money that God had provided for me was to give back to him 10% of what I received. And so from the time that I was a kid, I was trained in this idea of giving back to the church, of trusting the Lord with the first fruits. And I'm so glad that I was. You know why? Because otherwise I would have trained myself to spend every dollar on me. That's what I would have done. You want to know why? Because that's what our world teaches us. That's what the world trains us to do. Now, sure, the world says, hey, you know, and when there's bad things that happen around you, you should throw some money at that. But that idea of sacrificial, principled, regular giving that Paul calls for in 1 Corinthians is not the way of the world. In fact, the way of the world even goes further to say, and be sure people know you gave it. You need to post about that stuff. People need to know that you just made a big donation. There needs to be a ceremony. There needs to be something where people see you. Where Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing in your giving. And so you've got all of these things coming to bear on this passage right here. And we must acknowledge that in a place where we would expect a strict teaching on tithing, more than any other passage in the New Testament, this would be it. Where if Paul were ever going to say that this is the rule, this is the command, that this would be it, this would be the place, but he doesn't do it. But I want to ask you this question, because some of you in this room already agree with me. You say, that's right, The New Testament doesn't demand tithing. And so, you know, we don't have to do that. Do you think that it's not in the New Testament and it's not explicitly taught by the Apostle Paul or James or John or anybody else in the New Testament because they expected us to give less? Is that why it's absent? Is because they were convinced that we as the New Testament people of God who have become rich in Christ through his poverty, would then turn around and say, man, now I can keep it all. Now it's all mine. No, the lordship of Jesus Christ is this. I gave him everything. He didn't simply save me and cleanse me from my sin. He got my whole life, everything about it, including my finances to give and to surrender to him. Paul's words in verse nine, the gospel says that Jesus did not give 10% of himself, but 100% of himself. That's what the gospel communicates is that Jesus gave himself so that you and I might know God and experience the riches of every spiritual blessing in him. That's the good news of the gospel. So what do we do with tithing? I love what Randy Alcorn says about tithing. He says, tithing is the training wheels that teach you to ride in faith. Teenagers, a lot of you guys sitting over here, I encourage you, if you are not right now in the jobs and the income that you have right now, training yourself in this matter of living on less than you receive, then to start today with beginning with a principled approach like tithing to teach you to learn to live on less than what you're making right now, to give generously to the church in order to meet the needs of the people of God. Begin now. Don't wait. If I had waited, there is never a good time. There's never a good time to begin training yourself to give away your income, there's always a reason to hold on to it. And yet, there have been great joys that I have witnessed because of a lifestyle that was characterized by parting with my income, so that even to this day, I continue this practice of giving at least a tenth of my income to my local church, not simply to just any charity and this and that, but to the people of God to help resource the work of making disciples of all nations and to meet the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. So I encourage you students, start today, be the example, even in our own church. These matters of training wheels, think about it. How silly would it be if you went to City Park today and you saw an adult on on a bike that had a real aggressive lean to it and he's going? With training wheels, and I mean, he's flying through City Park and it's, I mean, he's just still on those training wheels, but he's got this $2,000 titanium bike and he's, I mean, everything he's in there, but still got training wheels on. No, you, you take the training wheels off and then you soar in generosity. You see, Randy Alcorn is an example for us as a Christian writer, but also as a teacher of God's word, because he has trained himself to the point now that he only lives on half of his income. And gives away the other half. He kept elevating what he wanted to give away in order to glorify God and be generous to the people of God. And so in a principle way, he pushed himself every year to get to giving away more and more and more. So does that mean that by his generosity, he will be saved? No. He is convinced that he, who was rich, gave everything for him. So how could he not? How could he not give everything for the sake of the one who entered into poverty for him? That's the basis of giving. That's why Paul doesn't have to command a strict tithe out of the church. He knows that you have been purchased with the blood of Christ. You are not your own. You belong to him. And so therefore, the spirit within you is going to produce a generosity that is no longer just law-bound but is now free in the spirit. But far be it from us that our giving, our generosity should drop below that which was the Old Testament standard. Indeed, it should be more and more and more. But then second, it's important to note here that Paul is not advocating for socialism, but is advocating for Christianity. You see, this is one of the great problems plaguing the church right now. That we who have political agendas, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or anything outside of those spectrums, of saying, here's my political position, now let me find a passage or a verse that supports it. That is what has us in the state that we are in in this moment as a church. People with political agendas who have a political conviction, a political party, a political ideology, some other thing to then say, there's got to be a verse in here somewhere that I can use to support that. You want to know who else did that? Early Americans in the support of slavery. They knew what they wanted, slavery. They, they knew how they wanted the system to work. And so then they went to the Bible and said, there's got to be some verses we can use to support this. Here it is. And then they supported it. They didn't arrive at the institution of slavery by being good students of the Bible. Instead, they had an agenda, they had a plan, and they found Bible verses to support it. Please be on your guard against that sort of Christianity Against that sort of a false gospel that that forms an ideology and then finds Bible verses here and there out of their context to support that agenda. Because right now, with a strong push by many for what would be called socialism in our country, where you take money from the wealthy and you give it to the poor, they say, look, that's exactly what Paul's calling for of taking money from the wealthy and giving it to the poor. Socialism would be a command from the government to take money and give it to the poor. In other words, you don't have the option, but look at the words of Paul. I I am not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm saying this to test the genuineness of your love. Paul is saying to us in this room, God is speaking to us today about the genuineness of our love But the true test of the genuineness of our love is not simply the love that maybe another person has so that we hold the standard that way. No, Paul does something very clear in this passage, and it's this. He establishes the standard of love with Christ in the gospel. That's what he does. He says, this is the standard of love. This is the standard of generosity. It's that Jesus Christ who though he was rich, for your sake became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. That's the standard. That's the bar. That's to whom we look. We don't compare ourselves to one another. We don't even compare ourselves to another church and what another church is doing. We look to Christ. Have you looked to Christ? Have you ever seen that this one who had inestimable wealth, treasure untold as the Son of God humbled himself and came and lived in our brokenness, in this poverty, to come for your sake? Have you looked to the one who gave it all for you and said to him, I give my all to you. Maybe you have, but over time you've taken bits and pieces back. You see, generosity is to be part of our lifestyle. So is our marriage. So is our parenting. So is our work. So are our hobbies. Everything about our life is to be characterized by this gospel of Christ. So maybe you're here today and this is the very first time that you need to give christ your life but for some of you you just need to give it again to acknowledge his lordship again in a specific area of your life where you've not been living in light of the gospel i'm going to invite rick to lead us in a time of worship I'm going to invite you to stand if you're here today and you've never trusted christ in these next couple of moments i want to invite you to just come forward to acknowledge that you want the life that only jesus can give let me pray for you father i thank you For this moment to respond to the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would be working in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room to produce by your spirit the life of generosity that you desire to see in the church. Pray specifically for the person who right now who is looking for the very first time to Christ, that they would come to him. You respond now in these moments, surrendering your life fresh to Jesus Christ.